Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Passing Shot, the tennis podcast by fans. I'm Joel. I'm Kim. And today on Top 8, we're back for our second part of our countdown, looking at the most dramatic moments from the last decade at Wimbledon. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. everybody welcome back to another episode of the passing shot and to our second part our second installment of the most dramatic moments from sw19 over the last decade and today we're going to be counting down numbers from number eight to number one yeah, exactly. So if you haven't already listened to our first part where we counted down from no, uh, moment number 16 to moment number nine, then make sure you go back and listen to that first because you might very well be having a go at us for not including some of your <laughs> favourite moments. But rest assured, we probably have in our previous episode. Yeah, because we we were kind of looking at this this when we came and thinking, we think the moments here, I think a lot of our listeners are probably going to be quite familiar with moments i think the unknown bit is basically what order we have put them in yeah it depends what you define as i don't know what what brings the drama is it like the quality of a performance is it an upset is it kind of some funky scoreboard story <laughs> like i guess different people have different criteria um and obviously we all have our own favorite players and maybe we were at a particular match so something remains in the memory more than you know another match and and obviously we're coming at it from a British perspective as well um, as will many of our listeners uh, but not everyone so you know there's something for everyone here whatever floats your boat Um, but we'll begin today Joel with our eighth most dramatic moment and actually I guess this one that we're going to start with today it's not necessarily one particular match. It's kind of more like one person's uh, story or journey at a tournament um, and, and two matches in particular, I suppose you could say. And we're not going very far back into into the past. We're just going two years ago uh, to Kevin Anderson, who, as many will remember, made the Wimbledon final in 2018. Um, but perhaps, you know... Th- more memorably were his his quarterfinal and his semi-final. Uh, the final itself, if, if anyone remembers, was actually very kind of one-way traffic. Quite a boring match. He didn't really have a chance um, for various reasons, which we'll come on to. But I think for me, if we're looking at this as a moment, what really you know stands out is his match against Federer in the quarterfinal, where he was a match point down. He was two sets down. Federer was comfortably winning. And then it kind of just turned on its head and Kevin Anderson ended up winning 13-11 in the fifth set, which, I mean, at the start of that match, I did not see that happening. 
it was meant to be a routine victory for Roger Federer. I'm I'm pretty sure up to that point he had spent like very minimal amount of time on a tennis court and you know we were just kind of looking and thinking oh Roger Federer he's going to make serene progress to the final where you know a lot of fans I imagine were hoping he was going to meet Rafael Nadal um, who was on the other side of the draw in a sort of 10th anniversary you know meeting of their you know classic from 2008 but Kevin Anderson had some, he had other plans, didn't he? And he really, he realized that uh, at match point down in that third set, because I think this match, it could have been so easily been, you know, a routine regulation match that we might not, you know, we wouldn't even kind of blink an eyelid that in, in the future. But, you know, looking back on it, it, it was a really kind of, you know, big moment. The, you know, the fact that Federer, I think, was going for his ninth Wimbledon title. You know, even looking at kind of the you know the matchup, it just didn't feel like an upset was was possible before the match. Yeah, I feel like Kevin Anderson is one of those players that when he comes up against like the big three, you know, he does well, but he never really has a big win. He he, you know, up until this this particular match, he, he sort of you know getting to a gold final would be kind of just about you know, what you'd expect. And and this was kind of the best patch of Kevin Anderson's career because he'd got to the US Open final, you know, the year before and lost to Rafa. Um, so you kind of just kind of came into this match thinking, eh, you know, this is kind of going to be run of the mill. And Federer had been playing so well in the tournament up until this point. Um, he hadn't even dropped a service game at the whole of his previous four rounds. And, he, you know, he was the defending champion. He you know, he just defeat was not really on the agenda. And I'm sure that two sets and a, and a match point up, you know, no one in that crowd was probably expecting what happened to happen. So, I, I mean, obviously, Kevin Anderson, all credit to him. He never gave up. He upped his level. And and I think Federer was probably caught a bit short, really. Um, you know, this is only the second time as well that Federer has lost um, at Wimbledon anyway from from two sets up. You know, it is, it is a very rare occurrence. I, I don't know if you can remember Joel, who who he had lost to previously at the same at the same stage many years before. Ooh. One Ooh. for the trivia. Um, oh, I've got no. I've uh, Songa. Yeah, it was Songa back it in two thousand and eleven. Which I mean, it's so long ago now. But um, I remember watching that match at the time and. That although it was surprising, it wasn't as surprising because we know Songa has like a massive game and on his day he kind of can pretty much, you know, have a b- big win. But um, yeah, it, it, incredible from Anderson really to kind of stage this comeback. And and I think what's then even more remarkable is what happened in the semi final, Joel, um, which was a memorable a memorable match, but perhaps for a kind of different reason um, entirely, should we say. I mean, Kevin Anderson just wanted to literally play every day of the second week, didn't he, <laughs> uh, at Wimbledon? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, he he came through against Isner 26-24 in that fifth set. Uh, you know, I think it, it, it basically led to, you know, look at the, the rule makers of Wimbledon looking at that fifth set and, and thinking, how can we shorten this? Because it, it did create a flat final. Um, you know the the amount of time that Anderson had to spend on court in his you know in his quarterfinal and semi final. I mean, that match against Isner was six hours and thirty six minutes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting a bit too excited about some another match we'll come on to, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was just uh, you know it was just another. I mean, it was just a bit of a serve serve a thon, wasn't it? And I think that's probably what kind of 
people were you know maybe some people were a bit kind of frustrated by but I don't think that kind of detracts from the fact that it was an incredible you know achievement by Anderson to to even you know get to the final um you know having taken out Roger Federer because because we've seen you know a lot of players who do have that upset in them they then kind of go out in the next round and you know they just kind of you know peter out but you know all credit to Anderson because he was able to kind of endure back-to-back five sets um you know five sets in a you know quarterfinal and semi-final in kind of high pressure environments and um you know and, and came through yeah and, and two sort of very different matches you know that kind of upset and coming from behind and then this kind of marathon affair in the semi-final which was sort of a you know war of attrition I guess as it went on and on and on and that final set alone the 26-24 that was almost three hours long uh and I remember watching it and just thinking oh when is it going to end because yeah the quality wasn't particularly high it was just kind of like waiting for someone to break serve so I think I sort of was pottering about the house doing things and I kept going back to it and then I was like oh it's still going on and um obviously that had knock-on effects as well you know for the final uh, for the other semi-final which we'll get onto in a bit as well so I think obviously this was probably the match that kind of finally made yeah as you said the organizers think mm, we can't have this kind of carrying on and happening again and again we need to introduce some kind of rule which ends matches at a given point um, which we saw come in to play the following year so yeah it was uh I think I guess an important um match for for in terms of kind of the rule changes that came in but also I mean for me you know this isn't really the tennis I want to see like two big servers like endlessly playing on and on um but I think Anderson showed us what he's made of um, coming through these matches. And it was it was a shame that he couldn't give more in that final in the end. Yes, because, you know, I think you look back on you, you look back on his run. And as you said, it's it's like he he had the, you know, the upset victory and then he almost had this. It was like an even bigger victory, but for completely different reasons. So he managed to almost kind of um you know make his mark uh, on the on the competition in in two ways with his quarterfinal and semi-final and that you know and that was even before he reached the final so he was making you know he was making um he was making noise through you know through the whole of the the second week so a, definitely a, a big achievement for him and you know I, do you see him getting to a, a grand slam final in you know, if if when if when we come back to 2020, because I know he's had kind of more injury issues mm. of late. Do you feel like this was his pinnacle? Yeah, I think this was his peak, but I I think he's one of those players that could certainly get through to another another final again, considering he's he's done it twice already. And especially if you know the U.S. Open coming up, uh, if we're not seeing some of the big names there, someone like Kevin Anderson might very well come through the draw and mm. use that experience. And if he's in good physical shape. Um, he's maybe one of the players that might have a little renaissance again. Who knows? Okay, well, we'll have to wait and see. But let's move on to our next moment, which is number seven in our countdown. And it is one for our British fans. And it is going back to 2017. And it is Joe Conter's run to the semi-finals, where she became the first British female semi-finalist at Wimbledon since Virginia Wade in 1978. And, um, you know... I- Obviously, she you know, she got to the same final, and she, I think I think she, in all accounts she kind of went out rather meekly to to Venus Williams four and two. But the journey there, the matches that she played, were some of the for me were some of the best actually in the whole tournament. And 
I remember two specifically, um, Kim, I don't know about you, but for me, certainly that second round match against Donna Vekic, uh, when she came out 10-8, I mean, that was a really high quality three hour match that was just, that was just a great, that was just a great match to watch as a spectator. Yeah, it was 10-8 in the third set, which, you know, you don't get very often at Wimbledon. And I mean, it could have gone either way. I think they kind of both deserved to win that one. And, you know, they'd had a really close match at Nottingham in the final there a few weeks before, which Vekic had, had edged. So this was kind of revenge for Joe um, and I guess the more important match out of the two, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it really could have gone either way. It was it was so good. Um, I think when they've I think pretty much every time they've played each other, they've produced a really good quality match. So it's definitely one of the matchups I want to see more of on the WTA. Um, so that match, I think, obviously, if Joe Joe could very well have you know gone out in the second round, I suppose, but she ploughed on. She had Sakari in the third round, who you know is also a very decent opponent. Caroline Garcia in the fourth round, um, and she'd also played Su Wei Shea in the first round, who I think had just beaten her at Roland Garros in the first round that year. So obviously, you know, Shea is not really uh, one of the players you kind of want to face. She's so tricky to play against. Um, so yeah, if you look at who you know, Contra had played coming through that, um, you know, really good opponents. And then Halep in the quarterfinal, which is the other match that most people will probably remember, um, which again was kind of head, head, you know, it was kind of neck and neck um, in the first two sets. They they split the sets on a tie break each. And then it was just kind of that third set. Uh, Joe got the break, I think in like the fifth game. And she kind of just managed to hold on. And I remember watching it and thinking, just hold your serve. That's all you need to do now, you know, once you've got <laughs> that break. Um, and then, yeah, just to be the first British semi-finalist, like female semi-finalist for like basically 40 years was just amazing, really. I just, you know, uh, such an achievement. And it's a shame she couldn't go further, but I think she should be really proud. And I think what we saw is how she handled the pressure from the crowd was very, very, you know, impressive. Yeah, and I'll always remember actually that match between Conta and Halep, specifically that match point, because I remember Conta winning it, but Halep wanted the point to be replayed because I think of some interference from mm. from the crowd. And I always thought it was such a it was such a almost like an annoying moment to have the match end on that, because it was such a high quality contest between the two. I wished it I almost kind of wished the it was replayed to give it I felt like it could have been a bit more like definitive but then at the same time as a British fan I was like no no Conta just get the handshake <laughs> and get out of there um so you know I, I just thought that match was absolutely excellent and you know it's come up against Venus Williams in the semi-finals I know you know uh, you know you look back at it you know Venus Williams I think was 37 at the time and you're thinking you know she's in the twilight of her career could you know was Conta going into that as you know his favorite you know she was the sixth seed and I think Venus was the the tenth seed but you got to remember Venus Williams on a on a Wimbledon center court I mean that is that's probably a home home away from home um outside the states and um you know I think she went on to you know obviously she she won and she went into the final which I think was eight years after her after her last one and you know it, I think it was a real um you know it was like two really kind of valiant kind of competitors. And I think, you know, Venus had that experience in her that basically was like, I've been here before. I know how to do this. And yeah, it it was just a bit of a routine victory. I was kind of hoping actually for a little bit more from Conta, but it definitely showed us her grand slam credentials, um, you know, 
her yeah her grandson her grandson credentials yeah i think um also condra had had beaten venus i think a couple of times in their previous meeting so it, it she knew that she could beat her and i suppose it was just the occasion and and a bit like we saw with with last year when she lost to Stritz, to stritzkova it's just yeah it felt like she'd sort of lost more comfortably than she should have done um but then i suppose well i don't know really with joe it's it, sometimes you kind of you look back and you think oh if only but i mean i think if you look at the the tournament as a whole, it's you know to get to the semis was was uh, amazing, and obviously she's done that at three different slams now. And I guess we just got to hope she gets herself in that position again, and then can finally eventually you know break through. I mean, we were discussing on our previous pod, weren't we, Joel, it, that it took Marion Barsley forty seven slams to win one. So there is still hope uh, for Joe Gonda. Hopefully not that long, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many slams she's actually been in, so maybe maybe she's not that far away. I don't know. But let's <laughs> let's move on to our sixth moment, um, which we're kind of going back to 2018. Um, I think it's one of those years that, especially for the men's draw, mm. just brought up so many exciting matches. I know. Um, so many blockbusters in 2018. and Except for the final, it was controversy as well. Well, yeah, exactly. Yes. But, uh, yeah, so 2018 was just... yeah. <laughs> If anyone remembers this match, I mean, it's kind of a classic Rafa Novak matchup. Um, five sets. It's one of their, probably one of their best matches they've had in a slam. Um, and I think for me as a Rafa fan, it was just so nice to see Rafa finally competing at the deep end of, of Wimbledon after many years of, you know, losing early. Um, so to see him, you know, be able to go kind of neck and neck with with Novak um, in, in the semifinals was amazing. And Obviously, they started about 8 p.m. on that Friday because of the Isner-Anderson match, which had gone on and on and on. Uh, they couldn't start till 8 o'clock, so they had to start uh, under the roof uh, because of the light. And they had to stop at about 11 o'clock because of the the curfew that Wimbledon have. Um, when they stopped, Novak was two sets to one up. Uh, so they came back on Saturday. I'm not sure what time exactly on Saturday they started because I remember there was a bit of debate about the fact that they were being put on um, in front of the women's final, which caused, mm, I think, a bit yep. of consternation. But I mean, in terms of that decision, I don't know really when they could have, at what other time they could have you know, resumed, to be quite honest with you. Um, but yeah. But it was uh, the roof decision, wasn't it, that was the more, for me, was the more of the burning issue because they, remember, they came back on the following day and they it, the roof was still on and um, you know, it was like a you know bright skies outside, and and you know Wimbledon's an outdoor tournament, all of that that sort of argument. But um, yeah, it felt like it, it was a bit odd for me that that match finished uh, like under a roof. I know it started under a roof, and I think that's what the their argument was. But it felt like it should have been like there should have been no roof uh, come come that. Uh, come that Saturday yeah I, I mean I feel like if if it's perfect weather and there's no chance of rain then why would you play under a roof but I guess the apparently the the, the rules is that you, if you start under a roof you then you should finish under a roof um, and you know Novak wanted the roof to stay closed um, although he did say that you know he didn't have any input into the decision for the roof to stay closed, but obviously Rafa was wasn't very keen to play under the roof. Um, so there was that kind of element of debate about it. You know, um, some Rafa fans weren't too happy about that. I suppose I'm pretty sure that they've 
changed the rule since. Um, I think they might have because done. of this because of this match. But but Kim, let's let's talk about that match because um, you know it was a it was a fantastic match. It felt like both players were at the peak of their powers. Mm. I mean, I was just kind of looking at the stats and the fact that Djokovic hit seventy three winners, Nadal hit seventy three winners. Djokovic hit 42 unforced errors. Nadal hit 42 unforced errors. There was very little you felt that kind of separated the two of them. And you know, I find what I find interesting with Nadal Djokovic matches is that the loser always seems to have a chance. And you know, this match was again, this match had that had that element in it as well. Yeah, I know. In the fifth set, um, Rafa was arguably the one that had more of the early chances. Like I think he had about five break points on Novak's serve um, and he couldn't capitalise. He, he didn't convert. Um, and ultimately, you know, Novak went on to win the set. I think, was it 10-8? Yeah. Um, so that for me was, you know, you look back as a fan of a player and you think, oh, they had their chances. Why didn't they take them? It reminds me of that really long Australian Open final in 2012 when Rafa was a breakup in the fifth set. And I think he might've had break points to go double breakup um, or he was close to it anyway. And, and you know, Novak kind of came back and you just think, oh, you're like, is it worse like to deal with the defeat if you know you had your chances and you didn't take them, you know, rather than not having had any chances at all. It's, it's one of those times that you come so close and you can't quite do it. And I mean, but it was a joy to watch this match. Like they were both playing really, really well. And I think also it gives um, more kind of fire to the argument that actually on a given day, I think a Rafa Novak matchup and their rivalry is actually greater perhaps than, than Rafa and Roger, because I think a lot of the matches that we've seen in slams from Rafa and Novak have been closer or tighter. Um, they've played more times. I think, you know, everyone sort of talks about Fedal, but I think that actually, you know, there's so much going for a Rafa Novak kind of rivalry and, and these matches that they've given us. Mm. And the fact that, I guess the fact that that match went across two days, I mean, Na- Novak had to play, what, three days on the bounce. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, it adds, it's dramatic for me because, I mean, I just don't like, I don't think I like personally to see semi-finals go across two days because it just creates a, a you know, an uneven footing in the final. I know kind of Novak came through against Anderson, who was kind of equally shattered, but um you know, it, it was uh, it, it was definitely a tw- it was definitely a tournament that just had lots of controversy, didn't it? Uh, particularly around the, I remember the you know round centre court and around scheduling, and you know I think that almost kind of added to it. But the fact that they were able to kind of put on an absolute you know masterclass of tennis, um, you know, starting at like eight pm at night or, or whatever, uh, it's just like an it's an absolute credit to you know to 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 two of the greats of the game yeah especially as they would have been like waiting around you know for that isn't it anderson to finish. the tension just watching it thinking when am i going to be on like how do you plan <laughs> your eating how do you plan your warm-up around that you know you just don't know how how when it was going to end and i'm sure that is one of the reasons why these kind of last set tie breaks are coming in because it's just it is a bit cruel on the players like leaving them in limbo but um yeah obviously they're they're two of the the greatest players ever. So they they if anyone's going to deal with it well, that they would. But um, I think if if Anderson hadn't had such a a long you know laborious match and then also a, a long kind of quarterfinal as well, you know who knows? Novak might have had might have might have struggled a bit more in the final if you know having played 
yeah, three days on the trot. But I mean, you know, he is like the fittest guy in tennis. So he probably was the best person to be in that position, to be quite honest. Yes. So let's move on now to number five in our list, in our countdown. And we are going back to last year, uh, to the ladies final, where we had a very memorable and historic, I think, moment um, with the final between Serena Williams and Simona Halep. And Simona Halep, absolutely well absolutely blasting Serena Williams off court 6-2 6-2 in and out in under an hour I think Um, it was just such a shocking it was just such a shocking match because you know for me Serena Williams had um, you know she'd been in Grand Slam finals recently and you think it was like only a matter of time before you know she was going to break Margaret Court's record and you felt like it was going to happen on you know a very very familiar patch to her uh, you know on the center court of Wimbledon against Simona Halep who's not really you know you, she didn't start off her career you know as a you know a a, a very um a, like a, a very well a what am I trying to say Kim a, a very well good garden grass court grass player, court player yeah. yeah there you go there you go <laughs> um but yeah Simona just came on the court and just absolutely played out of her skin and was just able to deal with um Serena Williams and all you know all of the you know the power and all of the ground strikes and all of that and she's just able to just n- completely nullify it yeah and i think like i just i wasn't expecting her to play so well like i i mean i knew Halep could obviously play extremely well and she'd won a slam you know but this was her first wimbledon final and you kind of tend to go with experience, don't you? Like Serena having won Wimbledon so many times and you just think, well, surely it's going to be, it wouldn't be one-way traffic, you know, against Serena. But I mean, Halep only made like three unforced errors, which just kind of shows you how clean she was hitting the lines and how she was just getting everything back. I remember her defense was just exceptional and what would, you know, Serena would have to play another shot and another shot and then inevitably, you know, mm. she'd be the one to make the error. And I watched this, you know, recently again, because it's, it's, it was a short match. It's under an hour. So it's quite easy to kind of watch the <laughs> watch whole thing. Break. Exactly. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just, you kind of always thought, oh, when's Serena going to come back? You know, when's Halep's level going to drop? And it just never did. So I think it was a pretty, like, almost perfect match from Halep, uh, as close to perfect as she could get. And probably the best match she'll ever play in her career. I mean, I'm I'm sure she wishes she could play like that all the time, but um, uh, it just, yeah, for me, it's, it's you know, normally I don't particularly like one-sided finals. You know, you want a, a, com- a competitive mm. match, but this was just such a pleasure to watch someone playing so, so well that for me, I didn't mind that. Yeah, it was it was such a it was such a joy, and I remember her post match interview with uh, Sue Barker was also equal. It was equally joyous, and I think she you know she did herself to a crowd that may not have been you know familiar you know familiar with her, and um, you know, I think from what what this what this match kind of showed me was I think particularly when you look at Serena Williams and in in the Grand Slam finals she's you know she's been in. I think players are now if you can kind of nullify her her power. And players can do that. Um, and I think Halep's movement helps her achieve that. Um, Serena Williams, I feel like at the moment, doesn't really have a like a plan B or another game that she can offer um, if, you know, if her, her, her power game's not working. And I think that was, the you know, one of the reasons why it was just such a, you know, a quick, quick and efficient win was that, you know, Halep was able to kind of deal with, with what was coming back with her. And, and Serena didn't really know what to 
it felt like she didn't really know she didn't have any time really to think about what what alternative i could i could offer exactly and she just wasn't serving as well at, at her best and obviously her movement around the court was not what it used to be and obviously Halep kind of just exploited that and she did what she needed to do and she she never let up because it could have been quite easy for her to have been the one to feel the nerves and the pressure as well you know just being in your first Wimbledon final um, and we've seen other players like Lasicki, you know who's not dealt with that at all well um, so obviously you know Halep's more experienced than Lasicki, but it could have been quite easy for her to have, have felt the pressure that, you know, Serena obviously was feeling for, for, for different reasons. Um, but yeah, this will always, I think, for me, stand out as one of the best women's finals, just purely for the the quality of, of Halep's performance um, alone. And I think it, you know, be hard. if you want to win the Wimbledon title, I think I'd like to, although, I, you know, I think coming through a great close match is is uplifting and you know the struggle is great but it's like I would want to just blitz someone and and have it done you know as comfortably as possible <laughs> so uh... well, I'm, just, I'm just looking Kim. you've put in the notes here Steffi Graf holds the vi- holds the record for the quickest Grand Slam final win in 19 1988 a 34 minute win in the in the French Open final oh I don't actually I mean is that was that a retirement or was that a legit match? I'm Ooh. I'm gonna have to <laughs> I'm gonna have to look at that one because it was either a, a massive double bagel or oh my gosh, I've just had a look. It was a double um, bagel. Not gonna lie, using a bit of Wikipedia here. Yeah, double bagel <laughs> against uh Natalia Zvereva. Um so that's wow. that's not so good, is it? Uh not winning a single game in a Grand Slam final. Oh my gosh. So, Joel, um, let's commence again um, with our fourth most dramatic moment. And it's a player that we've mentioned briefly earlier. Um, I'm sure everyone probably has this up there in their <laughs> their top moments because, well... Well, you uh, say top moments. It could be in, in people's bottom moments. I suppose so. It could well be because, I mean, it's memorable... Perhaps, yeah, not for the quality of the tennis, but just for the length of the tennis. Um, and that is obviously the Isna Mahu match from 2010, which uh, lasted in total 11 hours and five minutes and obviously is the <laughs> longest tennis match since records began. Um, incidentally, Joel, I was actually at this match for the first four sets before it became yeah, why? strange. Why? Um, I think it was one of those like... Why, what compelled day... you to go watch John Isner <laughs> versus Nicholas Mahu? I think I was already on the court. I think I was watching like Marat Safin or something like that. And then that match finished. And me and my friend were like, oh, let's just stay and watch a bit of Isner Mahu. <laughs> so I kind of have Love a bit it. of a claim to fame. But I, I yeah, I was I left obviously when they, they stopped. Um, I think it was on the Tuesday and it was two sets apiece. And then they came back on the Wednesday to start the fifth set, which obviously is what took this match into the history books <laughs> the numbers speak for themselves isna hit 113 aces mahu hit 103 there were 490 winners overall and it was just uh you know i just remember it at the time on tv and i remember john McEnroe on commentary saying you know is this going to be the match that's going to uh, bring in bring in change and I think you know his point of view um, you know and, and some pe- people's point of view look at this match and be like hey is this the is this the reason why we should have uh, best of three set competition you know in Grand Slam in Grand Slam tennis now you know I don't I personally am not part of that uh, school of thought but 
you know, I think those sorts of people will look at this match and be like, yes, we should have best of three set competition uh, in the men's in the men's tournament at Grand Sams because this this went on this went on forever, um, and <laughs> you know, it, it could have been. It felt like it. Yeah, it could have. It could have got. It could have gone over a bit quicker. <laughs> <laughs> Understatement of a century. There could have could have finished earlier. Yeah, I mean, I suppose <laughs> I see like McEnroe's point. Like best of three. Yes, there is an argument for that. But how often do we actually get one of these matches come along? Like not very. I know we had Isner and Anderson, uh, which wasn't quite as long. Uh, or still too long. But you know, it's sort of like once every ten years maybe that it's this ridiculous. I think there is definitely like the argument for the final set tie break. And I think that's, that's fine. What they've introduced with that, you know, the final set tie break at 12 all. Um, I don't think this match alone should have caused anything like best of three to suddenly happen. But um, I mean, yeah, it's mad. Like the final set alone was longer than any previous tennis match in history. Like the final set alone is just over eight hours. Like it, <laughs> I remember I was in like the Wimbledon queue. I think I was camping uh, for like, Rafa's second round match and you know we had Radio Wimbledon on and it was just going on and on and on we were all listening to it and it was just and then obviously like it still hadn't finished and it you know went into its third day and I was then in centre court and everyone was just like you know the change of ends like watching the the scoreboard to see if it was finally finished or not and then I think there was a massive cheer when when Isner you know had finally won not because everyone was cheering you know for him but um just because it finally finished <laughs> finally finished um, yeah. and I'm sure they had to change the rules as well like for fans on court 18 like normally you know if you leave you and to go off to the toilet or to get refreshments you can't come back and you can't save your seat but I think for this match they made an exception and I think it was because the, the weather was quite hot as well so they kind of had to bend the rules a bit as well. Well, I remember the um, the umpire. Uh, was it? Mah- I think it, it was, was Leone, Leone. I think, yeah, yeah. And and uh, yeah, he got his own little award um, because yeah, he literally sat in a chair, didn't he? And didn't have any sort of comfort breaks. Um, and he was yeah sitting in a in a chair under the sun. And uh, yeah, it was just. I mean, yeah, I just think this match. I'm mean, obviously this will live long in in the record books, but it's I think it's almost become a bit of a marmite match. I think you either love it or you hate it, and uh, you know I think I'm in the I do you know I almost think I'm in the in the, the I'm in the middle. I think I don't. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't. I don't want to say I, I love this match. I just think it's you know I think it was a it's a re- I feel like it's a relic of a time gone by, and you know mm. I think it's. You know, I think, you know, you remember like, you know, very going much further back, you know, there were, you know, we, it, tennis matches didn't even have tie breaks. And, you know, it, it feels like this match was, is a bit like, okay, guys, let's, you know, I think we can, we can, we can shorten, we can shorten down the, the time here. I mean, I mean, it's, it's a, a great, it was a great. It's a match for a museum, isn't it? I mean, no one is going to watch mm. this back. Uh, they might well, watch it is the on YouTube, point. Kim, so... Well, if, you're, if, if you, you have sleep, a day off, maybe uh, <laughs> you could put it on. I mean, the, the worst thing is 2011, lo and behold, Isner and Mahu are drawn against one another in the first round. So everyone was thinking, oh, no, here we go again. Um, but thank God Isner won in three sets. Uh, they didn't have to even go to a fifth. So I bet everyone was uh, 
relieved but I think I remember like loads of fans like went to that match in 2011 because they thought well if there's going to be another epic I must be there um but <laughs> it's just I mean it's just one of those things you kind of have to laugh about and think how ridiculous how ridiculous is this sport sometimes that we that we love so much <laughs> Okay, so moving on to our number three moment, and we again we we are going back to twenty twenty nineteen, and again this is probably this moment is about someone's run in the competition, not necessarily a specific match, but I think the first round match was the one that really kind of kicked off Coco Mania, and of course we're talking about Coco Goff who announced herself on the you know on the on the world stage even um you know she had she had lots of famous people you know tweeting her and and commenting on her um but yeah her run to the fourth round in 2019 she beat venus williams uh i think in the first round and yeah made it all the way to face simona halep um in the fourth round who was you know former world number one at the time and really this was just kind of I think it was that Venus Williams match really that just kind of put her on the map and, you know, made her a rising star. The fact that she was 15, 15 years old, Kim, um, it, it just makes it, it just, it just speaks. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just, it, it's just, it's mind boggling <laughs> to really think about it because, you know, she's playing Venus Williams. And I think I was kind of, I think I was reading somewhere that, that match could have been like a mum facing her daughter. That's that's how big the age gap was between the two players. Yeah, and obviously, you know, Coco Goff has said that, you know, Venus and Serena were, you know, her idols, like growing up, like they are kind of what inspired her to get into tennis. And so it was a very symbolic moment, I suppose, Coco Goff playing um, Venus in the first, first round and beating her. It's kind of like, is this the changing of the guard? You know, one generation in their twilight zone and kind of on their way out. Um, and then this, you know, Coco Goff being the future. And and I think it was just the manner as well that she she played. It was almost, yeah, like sort of, it was like big sister, little sister or mother or daughter. It was like a real kind of symbolic occasion, I think. And that I think, you know, everyone knows Venus Williams. So to suddenly defeat her in the first round is going to get people's attention. But for it to be like a 15 year old kind of like prodigy um, was remarkable. And for me, you know, that was a, a spectacular, you know, occasion, especially beating her in straight sets. And obviously then she came through the second round, which I think was against Rabarakova. But the match I most specifically remember was the third round against Polona Herzog, um, which was a very topsy-turvy affair it went to three sets and you know Coco Goff was a set down looked to be kind of on her way out she was I think two five down in the second set and she just staged a comeback um and everyone was just absorbed in this match I was watching the end of it on Henman Hill and like honestly I personally have never seen or felt such an atmosphere on the hill like it was kind of like a British player was on, but even even more than that, like everyone was like so engrossed in this match. It was it was amazing to like be there and to feel the atmosphere as that went on. Cause I think Coco Goff won nine seven in the third set. And for me, this match is the one that stands out from her, you know, her run that year. I I remember that match more so for her Sog's Herchog's uh, lack of killer instinct. I remember her. I think she got. I she. I remember she got really tight, and I remember her serves. Like it really showed in her like serving, mm. and you know, I, I think it was kind of amazing though because that match, that match had been 
you know, on you know, any other tournament that that could just been like a you know a match on the the outside courts, but it got given kind of top billing on um you know, I think on was on Centre it was on either on, was on Centre Court yeah exactly. I'm not sure. And you know it ele- it elevated proceedings, and I think it kind of showed you that Goff really likes that playing in those arenas, which is you know amazing at kind of fifteen years old that she's able to kind of handle you know that situation where you know players like Hertzog, for example, you know were not are not able to kind of handle those situations kind of completely through a, through a whole match, and I think that's kind of what I you know take take the most from it is that Coco Goff was you know I think she's obviously not well we obviously hope she's not reached the the peak of her career she's far from it but you know to have that ability to have that talent and and show us that at, at 15 years old I mean it broads very well for the you know for the tour in the future yeah you just hope that she can you know continue and, and back it up and obviously she's not being allowed to at the moment because of various reasons, but like come the US Open uh, and beyond. I mean, this it could be right for her to kind of do something great like so soon. I mean, I don't know, but I I do agree. Like she seems to be a big match player. And the fact that this match, you know, Coco Goff, who no one had ever heard of, like really like a month before that against Polona Herzog, I didn't even question why it was on centre court. It just seemed natural for her to be on there, which I think shows that she just has this sort of innate sort of sense of of belonging mm. at the top of the game. Um, and obviously, I think, you know, there was a lot of stuff on social media that really, like, a lot of people, like, I think a younger audience are really cottoning on and getting involved. And I remember there was a lot of memes going around say, about her mum and, like, her reaction in the crowd and everything. And like loads of celebrities kind of tweeting her. And you don't see that every day, even if someone has a big win. You know, you don't see that kind of momentum behind her. So... And obviously to then lose in the fourth round, but to the eventual champion, obviously there's no no shame in that. So yeah, this was definitely, I think, the story of of last year's Wimbledon. Um, I think, you know, completely. There were other nice moments, obviously, like Andy playing mixed doubles with Serena, for example. But this was, I think, the one story that really captivated everyone. Um, and... I mean, it'd be hard to beat, won't it? I think unless she actually wins the title, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's hard to to find a story as compelling, perhaps, as this one for a while. It's you're always kind of, I think, looking for these sorts of stories in that first week where you're not at the business end and you're kind of just getting through all the, you know, all the matches. And yeah, there are going to be some ones that you know the crowds aren't aren't going to particularly, uh, you know, um aren't going to be absolute thrillers or, or whatever but you know it, it a story like this i think came at like a perfect time the fact that it, it happened so early on the fact that you know it happened in the first round it got people's attention you know that that marquee victory against venus williams and the fact that you could then almost as a fan were able to kind of follow that story into the the second round and then the third round you could genuinely see like the the momentum building before it reached that crescendo against, you know, Simona Hallett. Yeah, it's just just like Peter Colt in a way, isn't it, Joel? <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to mention him in every episode, don't worry. But <laughs> I just, you know, this is kind of the stuff of like a Hollywood film in a way. But yeah, I suppose if she'd gone on mm. and won it all, won it all. But, um, but yeah, last year was very... Um, 
it gave us a lot of stuff for our, our countdown because our next moment, our second most dramatic moment um, from the last decade at Wimbledon is also from last year. And perhaps there is a bit of recency bias um, because, you know, it's kind of fresh in the memory. But um, we have to kind of talk about the men's final from last year, don't we? Novak Djokovic against Roger Federer. Um, a five-set thriller uh, culminating in the first use of the new tie-break rules at 12-all in the fifth set. Um, what are the chances of the very first men's final being played with that rule actually having to use it i mean i i it's just kind of ironic i think and i think it was in the gods that it had to end in this way what do you think <laughs> i mean it was a fan it was a fantastic final and yeah it just felt like you know when you bring something in you, you were kind of like waiting when's it going to be used for the first time it's blatantly going to be a john isner oh no no <laughs> it's it's completely different it's going to be uh Djokovic versus federer and yeah it was I mean that tie that tie break at the end was just um you know it it was um you know it was a very it was a very um it, it was a very dramatic final I think you know I think there's a lot of polarizing views on on this match given you know what camp you kind of sit in of course if you're a Roger Federer fan you might be looking at this match thinking you know, this is dramatic for all the wrong reasons because this is probably one of his worst. Uh, it was probably and will be one of his the worst defeats um, in his career. The fact that he was, you know, championship points up and lost, um, you know, at this stage in his career is a real kind of you know gut wrencher. Whereas people in Camp Djokovic will look at it like he literally had everyone against him that day. Federer, the crowd, even the commentators and you know, he was able to kind of just take it all in and be show his that mental toughness that we all know uh, is what makes Novak Djokovic. And and yeah, it, it pulled him through, pulled him through that day. Yeah, I think this match is if you're going to kind of showcase like why Novak has been so good and has become, you know, such a great player and is one of the you know, like potentially will become the greatest player of all time, like statistically. And in many people's minds is the fact that even when he is like championship points down or, you know, has kind of been on the back foot for a lot of the match, he, he's hung in there. He's won the points that mattered. Like he won um, both of the tie break, well, all of the tie breaks um, to win. And against, you know, the crowd, as you said, like we know at Wimbledon, they're very pro Federer. Um, it's almost like he's playing at home, um, you know, in Switzerland, it's, like for Djokovic to sort of go out there feeling kind of a bit un unloved, I suppose, and to come through it. And I love that moment at the end, actually, where he like eats the grass. I just think that that's <laughs> such an iconic. Why was he doing that? Well, I think for me, it kind of was, he was just sort of saying to everyone, like, you know, you might have been against me, but look at me now. Like I'm the one, you know, this is my court. I can eat it if I want. Um, I don't know. I just, I just thought that was a great. Uh, I just mm. thought that was a funny reaction. Um, and actually, for me, I didn't really know who I was supporting going into this match. I just wanted it to be a, a good final. And as it went on, I, I did find myself going more for Djokovic. Um, actually, which maybe surprised myself. I, I don't know. I, maybe it was the crowd. I, I remember some of the crowd. It was almost like they were behaving like it was a football match at times. I remember at the back where they have the cameras at the back of the court, there was this guy who kept standing up um, 
like every time they kind of did that shot of the back and I was like you know sit down you're not at a football match but it just showed you how much everyone was getting into it and it was one of those matches as it went on and on I found myself like looking away from the TV because I was just some of it was like cringy you know the fact that Federer had had like those championship points and it was just going on and on and on um it was so dramatic and and I think for me as a Rafa fan, I could actually kind of enjoy the drama as well as instead of being like incredibly stressed, the fact that it was like a player that I, you know, is really behind. So um, perhaps I got more enjoyment out of this final than some other ones. Um, and I was just going to say, Kim, it was going on at the same time as England were in the cricket World Cup one yes. day final against uh, New Zealand, which was equally, if not even more dramatic. And oh, I just remember... Yeah. Super yeah, exactly. And I, I, I don't know if any of our listeners were having that dilemma of, oh, what should I be? What should I watch? Should I watch the tennis or should I watch the cricket? And I just remember being really torn between what to do. So I did the classic sort of, I'll have this on the TV and then I'll have my iPad set up with, uh, yeah. with the other thing. But, um, you know, I think, yeah, this match was, I mean, this match had it all and it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to know whether, you know, this was what, was Roger Federer's like last hurrah? Was it, you know, taken away by, you know, Novak? Will, you know, there be a chance of redemption in, you know, in the future? Who, who knows? But it, it felt that kind of towards the end of that match, it was like Novak Jockey was like, I've had enough of this. I do not care for, I do not care for my opponent. I do not care for the crowd. I'm just going to do what Novak Djokovic does best and, you know, win this from a really hard position. And I just remember when Federer, I think on one of those championship points came to the net and, you know, Djokovic essentially had to make a cross court running um, forehand passing shot. And, it, you know, he did it with kind of, const- he made something that is very difficult, look very easy. And, you know, I, I think from there it was kind of like, okay, this, this could be on. And, and, you know, it, it, this could be a match people look back in, you know, in the, you know, greatest of all time debate and, and it real it be one of those moments where we look at you know the whatever that final standings might be on on grand slam titles this could be one of those it probably will be one of the the biggest sort of moments in in that story yeah that's such a good point this could be the one that separates the two um perhaps we'll have to see when all said and done but yeah, I mean, it was a great final. And I mean, it's funny that we've got both of last year's singles finals in, in our list, um, you know, for, for different reasons. One being very dramatic and very close and one not being very close. But that just shows, you know, you can kind of get joy from from tennis for different reasons. And um, yeah, I think this one was was kind of right up there. And we've, we've had some other big finals, obviously, you know, the, the Federer Roddick final. Um, and obviously the, the Fedal final from 2008, which, you know, in my view, that is the greatest um, final of all time. And my most dramatic moment from Wimbledon, like period, but it's not in the last decade. So we, we did sort of exclude it from this list. Um, and actually, we should mention before we move on to our number one moment, Joel, some of our honourable mentions that we kind of are giving a nod to that, you know, there's just so many things we couldn't quite fit them all in um, to our to our countdown. Um, what what, what honourable mentions would you like to, to give a shout out to? So, so controversially, I... Um, I, I, I kept out Andy Murray winning the Olympics, uh, from this list because it was the Olympics and it wasn't at 
you know, it wasn't at the championships. But, um, you know, I still think for me, that was certainly a very big moment um, for, you know, Andy Murray to go out, beat Roger Federer in a grand, in a, well, I was going to say grand slam, <laughs> grand slam to beat Roger final. Federer, <laughs> yeah, to beat Roger Federer on centre court, you know, at his home at Wimbledon uh, was a pretty, you know, was a pretty pivotal moment in him kind of, you know, rectifying the situation of, right, I'm going to, you know, I, I've got the belief that I can go and beat any, you know, anyone else uh, on on the tennis court, whether that's Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, whoever. Um, so for me, that was a, I think that was a kind of pretty big moment. But we're not including it, as I said, because it was in the the Olympics in 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 2012. Um, the other thing I was going to add, um, and it wasn't necessarily a match per se, but we've got to obviously say Wimbledon. The fact that Wimbledon 2020 being cancelled by coronavirus is a equally a dramatic moment because i mean this is what the first time this has ever happened i think like ever ever happened or certainly since the since the war um and it's you know it this still feels like there's a lot of you know it still feels like there's a lot of unknowns you know going about and i just hope that we can have wimbledon back you know next season you know watching it on the telly etc uh but um yeah for me those are two kind of big big dramatic moments i'd say that um you know for me are, are definitely honorable honorable mentions mm, no I, I would agree and for me when you say andy murray 2012 i just think of him crying but um obviously i think <laughs> that needed to happen for him to then win the olympics so um uh, i think also as well going back to 2018 we didn't mention this earlier but rafa against del potro that that quarterfinal was epic um before Rafa went on to play Novak, like it was such a good match. Um, I think there was also a, I can't remember exactly the year, but there was a semi, wasn't there, between Delpo and Novak that was also excellent. Um, and I thought Delpo's sort of last, uh, well, you know, he, one of his best chances of kind of getting mm. deeper at a slam again. And I, oh, when he lost that match, I thought, oh, he really did deserve to get through that one. But, um, also, I wanted to mention last year, Dan Evans, when he got to the third round and almost beat Zhao Salza in the third round. I thought he did so well and came so close. And I was watching that match on the hill and, you know, it was like the fading light. They had to stop and close the roof and they couldn't quite do it. And, you know, it was just very dramatic. But, you know, he had a good run. Um, Sam Querrey beating Novak in the third round a couple of years back as well. That was a big shock, but I think that was when Novak was kind of actually undergoing his injury troubles. So um, looking back, perhaps less so. Um, also, Kvitova against Venus. They had a really classic third round match back in 2014. Very close match. And obviously between, you know, two champions. Um, and obviously Serena equaling Steffi Graf's 22 Grand Slam titles when she won Wimbledon back in 2016. So... Um, that was also kind of up there on our list, but couldn't quite make it. Um, but yeah, listeners, I'm sure there's some that, you know, we haven't mentioned still. Um, you know, the list could go on and on. So if there is anything <laughs> we you feel we still haven't mentioned, then do give us a shout because, yeah, we'd love to hear hear your thoughts. But Joel, would you like to yes. now announce our, our number <laughs> one moment from the last decade at Wimbledon? Of course, Kim. Our number one dramatic moment from the last decade at Wimbledon is, surprise, surprise, Andy Murray winning against Novak Djokovic in 2013, which uh, it got the monkey, it got the monkey off his back, didn't it? He became Britain's first uh, champion, Wimbledon champion uh, in 77 years. 
uh, sorry, men's champion. He he would have corrected me instantly there, wouldn't he? He would have men's done, champion, yeah. <laughs> men's champion in, in 77 years. Uh, yeah, it was just a, it was one of those, you know, Kim, we were talking about this earlier in the week. It was like, it's one of those, where were you moments? And <laughs> I remember where I was. And hilariously, I was actually in Spain uh, teaching and I had to go out to, I had to go out in, I was, I was just outside Barcelona in a town and I was going through literally restaurant to restaurant to ask them in poorly worded Spanish, <laughs> could you put on the Wimbledon final? Cause I want to watch Andy Murray. Cause I think there was some Formula One going on on that day and they were all wanting to watch Fernando Alonso. So I managed to find a cheeky. I almost want to say a cheeky kebab shop. <laughs> and they had a TV on and I was like, I thought, man, they're never going to have the tennis. They are never going to have the... But miraculously, they did. So uh, I literally spent my whole afternoon there and, uh, w- yeah, watching Andy Murray win, um, you know, win Wimbledon. It was, it was fantastic. The fact that he got to do it against, you know, someone from the big three in the final um i felt like it that needed to happen and it was a real you know it was a real it was really dramatic i know it was three sets but it took over three hours and it was each set was a battle in its own right and i think you know the culmination of that you know for many people was that third set when in you know he was serving for it he went 40 love up three match points three championship points and it went to that it went to juice and it was like the longest it was like the longest juice probably of his life it was probably the longest juice um of their of their fans lives of his fans lives as well because um you know Djokovic gave him a real test that day and even though he you know he later admitted that you know he he you know Murray was the better player on the day he still you know made him made him work for it oh yeah i mean it, it just it just a note, Joel. It sounds like you just abandoned your students uh, to go off and watch this final. <laughs> but uh, maybe you weren't actually teaching on that day. It sounds like I you was, just, I was just a class. Class. wasn't teaching at the time. <laughs> but I would have happily abandoned my uh, oh, right. abandoned my students if, if it needed to. <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, no, I remember this match as kind of like a, a tight, tense tussle between the two of them, um, and it was oh, I just. I mean, I'm glad it was three sets because I think if it had gone on, you know, what if Novak had got that third set and it had gone, you know, on and on? I mean, I just, I couldn't imagine if he'd have lost that, like, I mean, we don't need to imagine it because it didn't happen. But um, I just, the emotion actually, like when, when Andy, you know, as it gets closer and closer and even watching it back, you know what's going to happen. You sort of well up a bit, don't you? Because it's just such a momentous you know occasion especially you know as a British fan and and um well he just you know you've just got to be proud of him for for kind of actually going all the way and I think you know this year um he almost could have lost couldn't he uh in the quarterfinal I think it was to Vadasco was he two sets two down? Sets, yeah. He was two sets down. So, I mean, people forget that. He was two sets down. Yeah. I mean, that would have been, <laughs> that that been, been the absolute nadir, like <laughs> losing to a Spaniard that's not Rafael Nadal on centre court at Wimbledon. I mean, that is not the way. That's probably one of the worst ways a Brit could go out. I do love um, a bit of Vadasco, though. So, um, I, I, he's a he's a great he player is, to watch, yeah, isn't he? He is such he's fun. A bit of a watch. Fernando Gonzalez sort of. <laughs> very. He's got some great shot making in him, but mm. he also defeated. I mean, uh, listeners. I mean, you may uh, very surprising. Uh, well, surprising. 
flash in the pan semi-finalist. He defeated Jerzy Janowicz uh, in the semis. So, you know, he got a bit of a, you know, he got a good run because, you know, I think we spoke about it in part one, the fact that Federer and Nadal had suffered early exits, but he was just able to kind of, um, you know, dodge all the, or kind of navigate all of the, the dangerous sort of players left in the draw. And, you know, he was one set down, I think, to, to Janowicz as well in that semi-final. But, you know, he, he came back and I don't think there was, you know, he got he got to the final. And I think, you know, when I was remembering the fact that when he was in the final, you know, he had got there, I was sort of, sort of relieved. But then at the same time, I was like, right, now, now, now the hard work begins. Now's the time to, now, now's the time to go get the, to go get your trophy and and make and make history. Yeah, and I remember um, I was actually at work during most of the match, but we had it up on we on a projector, um, and then I was like watching it on my phone, like the, the last kind of half of the third set. Um, while I was on the train home and I remember obviously a lot of other people were doing the same thing you know they couldn't be at home but they were like I'm not missing this um, and when he finally won I was I think going through like Clapham Junction train station um, <laughs> and like there were just like people clapping um, and like smiling and sort of you know just strangers like looking at each other like clapping and it was weird but like nice it was definitely one of those like this is going to bring the country together moments, uh, which we need more of, I think, uh, especially in light of, of what's going on. Um, but yeah, like this, I guess it would be hard for this not to be our, our number one moment, um, because even if you're not British, I think, you know, you understand the significance of this. And uh, yeah, it's just amazing. And obviously he went on and did it three years later in 2016, which like just you know backed it up again. And um yeah, I mean, they need to build a statue for Andy Murray now, don't they, at Wimbledon? They've got one of Fred Perry. Where's the Andy Murray statue? <laughs> yeah, definitely. But yeah, I mean, I would, I, I mean, I would put a shout out because you know we haven't really mentioned Del Potro, you know, explicitly on this list, but he has had a fair few classic matches over the year. But it always feels like he just comes up, like he has a classic match, but he's always on the losing end and. Again, he was in the the semi final against Novak. Our listeners might remember, and and that went to five sets. Oh, it was this year. He wasn't then. able to. Yeah, this was. It was really close. Um, he, I think, he was hard done by actually to have lost that. I mean, who knows what it would have been if it had been an Andy Delpo final? Mm. I think Andy would still have done it, but yeah, that's uh, an interesting possibility. But um, well, we got that in the we got that in the Olympics final, didn't we? In 20... Oh, 2016. Yeah. Potentially. I think we did. We did. We did. Be... Was that best of five sets? I think that... Did were. that go to five sets? I Ooh, feel like that I don't know if it sets. went to five sets, but it was best of. Okay. I'm not sure. Anyway. <laughs> um, we'll have to do an Olympics dramatic moments or something <laughs> in honour of the fact that they're not happening. Uh, but we'll see. Well, let's... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yes, uh, yeah. Let us know, listeners. Yeah, let us know. Did you did you agree with our list? Did we get it in the right order? Did we miss F any moments? Um, contact the contact the show. You can do so uh, on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Passing Shot Pod. If you want to email the show as well, you can do so. Passing Shot Pod at gmail you can subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to click that subscribe button uh, so you get our podcast straight into your inbox when we uh, release a new episode. And if you are listening to us on Apple, uh, remember you can leave us a comment and give us a rating, uh, and that really helps everyone else to find our podcast. 
Yes, indeed. And uh, yeah, we will be back with a catch up on Sunday. We will be coming back to the catch up show with Joel and Kim, where we'll be looking back on the tennis world, all the tennis news going on. So I hope you can join us for that episode. But uh, yeah, that's that that wraps it up. That wraps it up for our Wimbledon Wimbledon content, our Wimbledon moments, dramatic moments of the last decade. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this this two part episode. Uh, we we had some we had some fun making it. So um, yeah, we'll be back on Sunday, and uh, yeah, I hope you can join us then. See you shortly. You know, Joel, I had to ask a barman in uh, Mallorca to put the US Open final on one year in which Rafa was actually playing. And he looked at me with the most confused look on his face, uh, which was surprising because it was Rafa's own island that I was making <laughs> this request in. So not sure about your bar owner in Barcelona there. How how dare how dare he not know who Rafa Nadal is? Uh, well, I think he knew it, but he just was reluctant. But I mean... Was it just your Spanish? Was it your Spanish that was... Maybe, maybe my Spanish, you know, leaves a lot to be desired, but. um... (laughs) Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 